Support for Mississippi Edition comes from Mississippi State University Center for Distance Education, providing online programs and certification at the graduate and undergraduate levels. Distance at State. Even there, you're here. More information at distance.msstate.edu. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, November 16th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, will another casino hurt or help the state? Find out more about concerns over the outcome of today's Choctaw Native vote. As with any project, whether it's the Native Americans or whether it's the commercial casinos, the goal is to drive tourism to our state. Then, as the ceiling for high blood pressure lowers, learn what you can do to monitor and lower your rate. And in our book club, Two Sisters and a Fire Shape the Future in Oxford author Julie Cantrell's new book, Perennials. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Members of the Mississippi Band of Choctaw Indians are headed to the polls today to show support or opposition to yet another casino on tribal lands. If approved, it would be the fourth casino operated by Native Americans in Mississippi. The casino would be built on tribal land in the Redwater community. That's just north of Carthage in Leake County. Leaders say money from Choctaw-operated casinos goes back into the tribe to fund everything from health care to education. But what about the potential impact on other casinos? Tribal Council member Barry McMillan says adding a fourth casino will take money and jobs away from other the other three. Outside the tribe, others question the effect on casinos along the Mississippi River and the Gulf Coast. Jason York is Executive Director of Development and Operations for the Pearl River Resort, where two casinos are currently operating. He tells our Mark Rigsby how another casino could affect the Choctaw Nation. Well, the new casino means additional revenues for the tribe as a whole, as well as the addition of uh, between 200 and 250 jobs um, in the uh, Redwater community. Um, We anticipate that the additional revenues generated uh, would be approximately $50 million in uh, gross gaming revenues. That actually sounds like a no-brainer, uh, but there is opposition to this. One of the arguments is that having a, another casino, a fourth casino, operated by uh, members of the Choctaw Nation in, in Mississippi would mean that money and jobs would be pulled away from the other casinos that are already in operations. What do you say to that? Well, in our studies, one of the areas that um, the opponents of this project um, like to focus on is there is a um, issue with uh, $18 billion in revenues that would shift from our main resort, um, that being Silver Star and Golden Moon Casino, primarily from the Jackson area, that would shift to the Redwater, the new Redwater Casino facility. Um, So uh, essentially what that um, means is that um, as we build the second property closer to the Jackson marketplace, it's projected that potentially up to $18 million of current activity that occurs at Silver Star and Golden Moon, uh, they'll choose to go and game that at the Redwater Casino. And they tend to try to focus on 
that um, revenue shift as a revenue loss, which it is not. Um, but there's also a concern with um, the potential impact on jobs at the Silver Star and Golden Moon Casino, which within um, all of our discussions within management and with, with the tribal chief, um, we feel that even with that $18 million shift in revenue from one facility to the other, that that will not have any adverse impact on any jobs at our main resort. Is there a concern or was there a concern when you're putting this project together about how a new casino uh, would impact other casinos that are in Mississippi that are not controlled by the tribe, those casinos along the Mississippi River and the Gulf Coast? Our primary focus, I guess on, on my side of the world, is providing uh, revenues for the tribe specifically. I mean, there is awareness that um, there would be impacts potentially um, to other operators within the state of Mississippi. And of course, Mississippi operates in a um, competitive um, environment. You know, Mississippi has one of the most uh, liberal, liberal um, licensing structures uh, available, you know, um, although, you know, there are stringent requirements for companies coming in to get a gaming license. Uh, there's no cap on gaming licenses within the state of Mississippi. Let's talk about today's vote uh, by the members of the Choctaw. Help us understand who's eligible to vote and can members of the tribe vote even if they don't live in Leake County where the proposed casino would be located? Yes. Um, tribal members that are um, aged 18 or older who have registered with the uh, Choctaw Election um, Commission are eligible to vote in this election. Um, so that's, that's primarily any, any adult within um, the tribal membership roles. Um, that's whether or not they live in Leake County or any of the other counties where our eight uh, tribal communities are located. So this is a tribal-wide vote. What's your gut feeling? Do you think this will pass? My gut feeling is that it will pass, um, that we will get a uh, favorable outcome for moving forward with the uh, Redwater Casino. So I'm, I'm anticipating uh, very good news later today. And finally, tell me when this casino would open up if this vote is passed today. Well, if and when the vote passes today, uh, uh, we anticipate um, the project to take uh, 10 months from groundbreaking to opening so sometime at the end of next year? Sometimes towards, towards the end of next year, correct. Jason York is the Executive Director of Development and Operations for the Pearl River Resort. Jason, thanks for being on Mississippi Edition. Thank you, Mark. According to the Mississippi Gaming Commission, gross gaming revenue from January to October was $1.7 billion. That's about 3% down from last year. Larry Gregory is executive director of the Mississippi Gaming and Hospitality Association. He tells MPB's Mark Rigsby, tourism, not competition, is their main focus. Uh, you know, from the onset of gaming here in Mississippi, We've always taken the free market approach with gaming. If you have the money and good people, you can put a casino here in our state. Regarding specific projects, I probably would hesitate on commenting on any type of competition. Is there a concern right now that if the vote is approved and there's another casino in Mississippi that it might draw money 
from other casinos that are already well-established? What we're looking at as an industry, as with any project, whether it's the Native Americans or whether it's the commercial casinos where we we develop new casinos, the goal at this juncture of our state is to drive tourism to our state. And if more visitors um, uh, come to our state as a result of this development, of course, it would be good for the state. And uh, that that's our approach. We want more uh, people to come to our state and to visit. And we certainly would hope that this project would bring tourism to our state. So it's actually a good thing for the entire state and the other uh, gaming establishments that are already here. You know, I've not seen the project. I don't know what it is, how big it is, what it is. I'm just stating, you know, in simple terms, that if this casino is going to drive tourism, that's the main goal of what we look at in developments, um, you know, of our capital investment, of course, is, is important. Uh, hiring and the tax revenues that go to the state is all important. But at this juncture of the casino industry, it's critical that new development uh, is not just a casino with more slot machines, that the uh, casino itself will bring in more visitors to our state, and we certainly would hope this project would. Larry, let's talk about the gaming industry as a whole in Mississippi. How are we doing? You know, I I look at at percentages and uh, year over year, and, uh, you know, we're we're a stable market. uh, Comparatively speaking, throughout the country, Mississippi is faring well. Uh, Certain parts of our state is doing a little better. You look on the Mississippi Gulf Coast, Single-digit increases year over year. Uh, the Vicksburg market is doing uh, stable or status quo from year over year. And then the Tunica market is not doing quite as well uh, year over year. But uh, you can tell by the, the numbers on the Gulf Coast, not only by the revenue numbers, but by the visitor numbers. I mean, we have millions of visitors coming to our state. And uh, we've got a great, great product down on the Mississippi Gulf Coast with the air service that we have now, with the many entertainment venues that are offered uh, throughout the year. So it's a lot of non-gaming that's being attractive to the visitors, not so much the gaming per se, but the non-gaming amenities. What's the Gaming and Hospitality Association's position on a state lottery? You will hear me state that loud and clear uh, come Thursday afternoon at the state capitol. Could you give us a preview? Well, I wish I could, but uh, I will owe it to the Lottery Study Committee uh, who is studying the lottery issue uh, to submit our position as an industry first uh, before I uh, put it into the public square. Larry Gregory is the executive director of the Mississippi Gaming and Hospitality Association. Thanks for being on Mississippi Edition. You're welcome. Thank you. Coming up, as the ceiling for high blood pressure lowers, learn what you can do to monitor and lower your rate. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. 
Coming up this week on At Issue, we preview the 2018 legislative session. Our political experts, Democrat Brandon Jones and Republican Austin Barber, will talk about what they expect will be on the agenda for state lawmakers. To me, I think this is the biggest issue the legislature would deal with. They're really not up to the big challenges facing Mississippi. Join host Wilson Stribling for At Issue, Mississippi's only statewide television news program, this Friday at 7.30 p.m. on MPB. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. More Mississippians will be added to the high blood pressure category. This after a change in the scale by the American Heart Association and the American College of Cardiology. A person whose pressure rate is 130 over 80 or higher officially has high blood pressure. The base, or the base for the group used to be 140 over 90. Dr. Rick DeShazo is with the University of Mississippi Medical Center. He tells us earlier intervention will be taken to prevent further increases in blood pressure and the complications of hypertension. There's always been a lot of confusion about what pre-hypertension is. We've never known whether to really treat it or not or just observe it. We've told people to lose weight, which they it's unlikely they will do uh, if they've already got a weight issue. Uh, so th- finally, the scientific evidence accumulated to show that what we have traditionally called prehypertension, that's blood pressures over 120 over 80, are clearly abnormal and are associated with an increased risk of cardiovascular effects. 120 over 80 has been normal, and then the next level is prehypertension or elevated, and then pre. That's the old one, yeah. Okay. So now prehypertension, which is anything, uh, the top one is the systolic, anything over 130 is now, the new guidelines are 130 over 80. Really, they probably ought to be closer to 120 over 80 and uh, for everybody. The only controversy is people over 65 who are frail. There are some people over that age, over 65, who are frail, especially who have dementia or other vascular problems that they might need a little higher head of pressure to get blood to their brain and to their kidneys. And those are the only people that should have a higher blood pressure? Well, we're not even sure yet. Let me just tell you what the pragmatic response to this is. As a physician, I'm going to uh, encourage every patient I have to try to get their blood pressure 130 over 80 or less. How much less, I'm not really sure yet, but somewhere around 120 over 80 would be ideal, but less than 130. And we're going to make a pact for this. If they are symptoms in the process of getting this blood pressure regulated, we're going to compromise on exactly where the number is going to be. And so it's going to be a a doctor-to-patient interaction, but I'm going to push a lot harder uh, on people who have uh, said, oh, no, let me try this, let me try that to put them on the medicines that we have now, which are a totally different set of medicines than we had 25 years ago. How so? They cause many fewer side effects and have been demonstrated to have many more benefits. And for instance, beta blockers that used to be used as first-line drugs and made just about everybody fatigued, that's a third-line drug now. We start with very low doses of water pills, diuretics, 
and ACE inhibitors or ARB drugs that have very few side effects and are very effective in, in people who have borderline blood pressure getting it fixed. So it's a whole different world out there. And the bottom line is forget all that stuff about prehypertension. Focus on 130 over 80 and learn how to take your blood pressure at home because we pretty much disregard blood pressures in the clinic. They're almost always elevated by the stress of coming to Mine's a always doctor. up a lot. So <laughs> White you, coat syndrome. Yeah, but you've got to know how to take your blood pressure. You get a good quality cuff, not a wrist cuff, a cuff for your arm. You read the instructions. These are automated. They cost about 30 bucks. You don't need to buy the $600 one. The 30 buck one works fine, but you have to do it correctly. You have to not drink any caffeine for about 30 minutes to an hour before you have your blood pressure taken or you take it yourself. You have to sit down for at least 10 minutes and relax And you have to uncross your legs when you take the blood pressure. Just crossing your legs drives it up 10 points, Hmm. okay? And then to check your blood pressure two or three times and take the average of those, and that'll give you an accurate reading. It doesn't make any difference whether you do it in the morning or at night. It's great if you could do both. But you need to record those values and take them to your doctor and not take the ones the nurse measured in the clinic to give to him for consideration of what to do. Is someone more likely to have high blood pressure when they're older than when they're younger? Yes. Our blood pressure tends to go up as we get older. And the reason for that is the blood vessels get rigid. That's that wearing out of those elastic tubes that we all have the same. And that's genetic and uh, it, it needs to be treated. What if your top number is in the normal range and your bottom number is elevated? Diastolic, the bottom level, and systolic hypertension, the top level, are both serious entities. We used to blow off the bottom one. So if either one of them is elevated over the target, 130 over 80, strong consideration should be made of starting a blood pressure medicine and trying to get people to lose weight and exercise. And a lot of those people who do, we take them off blood pressure medicine. They don't need any more. Dr. Rick DeShazo, thank you so much. My pleasure. It's been 14 years since blood pressure guidelines were changed. High blood pressure is second only to smoking as a preventable cause of heart disease and stroke death. Coming up in our book club, Two Sisters and a Fire Shaped the Future in uh, Oxford author Julie Cantrell's new book, Perennials. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. If you're a sustaining member of MPB Think Radio, we appreciate your support of our programs. To become a sustainer, go to mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition. Oxford author Julie Cantrell is launching her fourth book this month. Perennials is the story of two estranged sisters who discover unexpected lessons of hope and healing when they reunite at their parents' home. The award-winning New York Times and USA Today best-selling novelist has many talents. The writer, speaker, and speech-language pathologist tells us more about her work. From the very start, I didn't write to publish. I wrote for myself. And so I never intended to become a published author, a published novelist. And, you know, life kind of fell into place for me that way, and I've been very grateful for it. But I think I had to kind of come to a peace with this journey, and I look at it as the story is not mine. 
I'm just a vehicle that the story comes through. And so I'm just a tool used to deliver a story to the world. And I believe that the right people will find it at the right time and, you know, receive it in the right way. I just truly believe that. So I try to just deliver the story that comes through me and let the universe handle the rest. Did this book bring a level of joy to you because you can set it in Oxford, a town you know very well? Oh, yes. This is my fourth novel, and I knew that someday I would write about Oxford. It's just too special of a place to me and to so many other people, but this was the time, and I guess I never knew exactly when or how I was going to write about it, but I have really enjoyed creating this story, and I can't wait to welcome people into this story, not only locals and um, people in the region who already are familiar with Oxford, but all the people who have never had the wonderful experience of visiting this incredible little community. It's just such a special place. There are two sisters in this book, Lovey and Bitsy. And right away, with the name Bitsy, I know she's the popular one. <laughs> she, yes, I try to find the right names for my characters. It's kind of a fun process to go through that. <laughs> um, Bitsy is the one who was Miss Everything, homecoming queen, and she was she's always been the golden girl. And she followed very clearly in her mother's footsteps. Her mother was also the golden girl. And so that didn't leave a lot of room for Lovey to be what the women in that family had always been. And so Lovey has always felt like a little bit of an outsider, even within the family system. Even though everybody loves Lovey, she kind of serves the purpose eventually of becoming the scapegoat for the family. And then she has to come to terms with what that means for herself and for her life. Does the book start with the fire of the garden shed? Pretty near the front, yes. Um, just in the prologue, actually, we have a fire, and it's from their childhood. There's a trauma that happens. The garden shed catches fire, and as the book goes on, we learn more about how that fire came to be and the consequences that happened as a result of the fire. But it was one of, you know, sometimes what seems like a small moment to other people is a huge traumatic shift in another person's life. So this exact incident changed the course of Lovey's life and of some other people's lives. But as the story goes on, we realize maybe it wasn't as huge and impactful for other people in the story. And that's what I kind of liked to think about as I wrote this story, how one little moment in time can send one of us one direction and another person an entirely different way. And that's kind of what the fire started in the book. The title of the book is Perennials, which is flowers or or plants that come back. Is that what the theme is of the book? Things that come back, reoccurring? Exactly. Exactly. I think the whole spark for this story, you know, we all have those moments where life kind of starts to get the best of us. And we feel like we're in one of those dark night of the soul plot moments in our own story. And I was having one of those why me kind of phases of my life and everything seemed lost and didn't know quite which way to turn. And I walked outside that morning kind of aimless and my stargazer lily had bloomed. And this was a lily that I had carried with me across multiple moves for more than almost 20 years that a friend had given me. I don't know how it was still living. And in that particular move, it had been just kind of thrown in a pot in an emergency in very poor soil, awful conditions, shoved to the side. (laughs) She had no reason in the world to be blooming for me. And yet there she was, this beautiful, bright pink bloom. And she just kind of gave me a sign that life comes back. And that's what sparked the whole idea for the story. What do you hope 
readers most get from this book? I examine relationships in most in all of my novels, but this one in particular, I look at sibling relationships and what family means, and ultimately what it means to love one another. It's not always easy, and family dynamics are so challenging. They can be so hurtful because we love these people so much, and we don't want to hurt one another, and yet every family has a story of pain, a journey of pain that we have to go through, and I think that's the ultimate lesson or or thought I want to leave with readers is, you know, love one another. That's it really comes down to just loving one another. The book is called when it's hard, even when it's hard. (laughs) The book is called Perennials and the author is Julie Cantrell, who we've been speaking with. Julie, thank you so much. Best of luck with the book. Thank you, Karen. I really appreciate your time. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for a full slate of Mississippi programs all morning long. And join us again tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition on MPB Think Radio. Support for Mississippi Edition comes from Mississippi State University Center for Distance Education, providing online programs and certification at the graduate and undergraduate levels. Distance at State. Even there, you're here. More information at distance.msstate.edu.